Hello and welcome to the first in a series of podcasts entitled Markets in Conflict, brought to you by Argus Media. My name's Lloyd Thomas and I lead the consulting services team here at Argus. I'm joined today by two of my colleagues, David Fife, our Chief Economist, and Haik Gugratz, Associate Editor and Expert on US and International Energy Policy and Politics. Welcome to you both. These podcasts will provide our view on the impact that events in Russia and Ukraine are having on commodity markets. The first one will look at the implications for the world economy. I'd like to start by getting some broad perspectives on the impact that events in Ukraine are having. So I wonder if I could ask David to give his views on the damage the war is doing to the global economy and to trade more generally. Okay, thanks, Lloyd. It's a pleasure to be here. I think up front, it's good to note that even ahead of Russia's uh, going into Ukraine on the 24th of February, there was a sense that momentum in terms of the global economy was already slowing through much of, of 2021, or certainly from mid-2021. We had the sort of V-shaped recovery, an astoundingly V-shaped recovery after the worst of the pandemic beyond the, the, the first half of 2021. But very much in the second half of last year, whether you were looking at global trade, whether you're looking at uh, PMI data, GDP, momentum was sort of slowing in the second half of last year. And of course, that was exacerbated by, to a certain extent, the energy crisis in Europe and Asia last autumn. So inflationary pressures beginning to filter in to the global economy, concerns about interest rate increases. And so in a sense, you know, the Ukraine crisis has just exacerbated some of those headwinds for the global economy that we were already beginning to see. And it's it's building on the sort of supply chain bottlenecks that were beginning to come into the uh, the picture. If we want to look at absolute numbers, I mean, in terms of our assumptions for GDP growth globally this year, uh, those have been cut back from 4% for 2022 to 3% and from sort of 36 3.7% next year down to about 2.8%. And people may say, well, okay, that doesn't look too bad on a global basis. That's still sort of semi-respectable growth. But let's bear in mind that the official definition of a global recession is real GDP growth of 2% or below. So if we're looking at 2.8, 3%, we're beginning to nudge downwards alarmingly towards something that hopefully won't but could, in some scenarios, nudge closer to a, a global recession, hard on the heels of the one that we saw in the first half of 2020. Thank you. And clearly, the, I mean, the impact is being felt right the way across the globe. But I'd love to hear your views on, on which countries or regions are, are most and least effective and likely to be, and also the extent to which any markets are actually shielded from some of the effects of what we're seeing at the moment. Let's maybe start by looking at two of the most important global markets, the US and China. Hi, what are your views on, on those markets in particular? Same continuation of trends as before the war started, but it displays itself in different ways, particularly in the US, most uh, visibly for uh, politicians as well as for consumers, fuel prices are significantly higher. Uh, so the retail uh, gasoline prices, which are a political gauge as well as an economic gauge, uh, ended the year in US at $3.33 per gallon for the week. And it, uh, yesterday, uh, they are to almost $4.50. That is actually the highest on record. 
in nominal US dollar terms. Uh, so a 35% increase since the beginning of the year. And it does not necessarily follow the crude price movement, but and the reason I'm siding with fuel price, it's not uh, just contributing to an economic downturn or slower growth, but it's, it's also becoming uh, a political problem, kind of uh, moving the White House to action. The IMF has cut the U.S. growth projection for 2022 to 3.7%, and that's on top of pretty high inflation. The consumer price index for April was just over 8%. And, you know, that's it's quite an eye-popping number. Last seen in 1970s during President Carter's administration. That is affecting, obviously, consumer confidence. Energy price increases are fitting into, you know, economic growth projections as well. And uh, specifically related to uh, the war, obviously, where... The energy crisis that started last year in Europe has affected natural gas prices. And the U.S., to a certain degree, was immune. Obviously, U.S. is a big producer, in fact, the largest, I believe, gas producer, but it's also a major exporter. And U.S. LNG exports have been increasing, and so has been a U.S. natural gas price. The Henry Hub index, both in the futures market and in spot index, has been over $8. It's, again, something last uh, recorded in the late uh, 2000s. So it's it's quite an increase in uh, economic terms. So the U.S. uh, is facing this slower growth. It's facing higher fuel prices. If you look at uh, China, we haven't yet talked about the pandemic, but uh, China is actually going through uh, what... uh, the rest of the world has experienced in a quite sharp way two years ago. Massive lockdowns, a massive uh, government-mandated decrease in economic activity. So the effects of war are obviously through energy price so far. They have been somewhat uh, insulated just because of lockdown-related decrease in demand. And of course, the Chinese government reported a large increase in uh, first quarter GDP, uh, 4.8%. I think the IMF uh, expects a growth for the year to be 4.4%. David, I believe we have our own number for China that is uh, more conservative. Is that right? Yeah, I think we're assuming something a little bit more conservative, around 4% for this year for China. So it's a little bit below the IMF number. And of course, a lot depends on the degree to which the economy, you know, springs back in the second half of the year after the lockdowns that they've been uh, facing essentially in the first half of 2022. And to put it in perspective, as David mentioned, the recovery from the pandemic has been slowing down globally. If you look at the global forecasts, the US and China have been marked as sort of uh, the engines of global growth. They were the first and fastest to recover after the severe decline in most of the world, although Chinese GDP did not actually drop, it increased in 2020. But those two countries were the fastest uh, to rebound and they were kind of leading the rest of the world. Now we have U.S. growth slowing down, we have growth in China slowing down. The rest of the world is also starting to slow down. Obviously, the war has more immediately affected the economies of Ukraine, 
it is really hard to even forecast growth in a country that is ripped apart. The IMF pegged the number at a little bit over 30% decline in the GDP. Russia's own GDP uh, is expected to fall by 10%. The Eurozone economic growth is also slowing down, but uh, a lot of it cannot be estimated until the effects of a potential oil and gas embargo on Russian imports uh, can be fed in. Very much. And I think you touch on a number of interesting points there, and, and there's a couple that we'll come back to, uh, um, notably comments on the different pace of recovery from the pandemic and the fact that China is actually still maybe where we were a, a couple of years ago, and also the impact that higher prices uh, at the pump and uh, higher energy prices are likely to have on the consumer and, and what that may do to the economy. Before we come to some of those other questions, David, I wonder whether you just maybe round out some of the other regions and you know, maybe thinking about Russia and Ukraine themselves, the impact on Europe and, and potentially broader Asia as well. Absolutely. I'll come on to the Eurasian region, if I can call it that, in a moment. But just to follow up on what uh, Hike was saying in terms of the US policy response, of course, the elephant in the room, if we want to call it that, in a sense, is the that everyone is watching the pace at which the US Federal Reserve is raising interest rates in an attempt to tamp down inflation in the US economy. And of course, this is hugely important, particularly in the emerging markets, which are the key consumers of commodities. You know, we look at Europe, which, as I'll mention in a moment, is Europe and Russia and Ukraine are obviously going to feel the brunt of the economic impact. But let's not forget the emerging markets, high debt importers, they're confronting with a much stronger US dollar, significant challenges in terms of repaying debt, significant challenges in terms of inflation for commodities and food in particular. So the emerging markets are going to have a fairly sobering 12 to 18 months, and that's going to hit global commodity demand and oil demand in general. If we look at Europe, obviously, Europe is particularly affected by the potential for a squeeze on commodity supplies out of Russia. Europe gets 25% of its petroleum imports from Russia. That's crude oil and refined products together. You know, 50 to 60% of its natural gas imports. It's the, the broader Europe, not just the EU. And, you know, about 50% of its coal imports come out of Russia. So massive dependence on Russia for commodity supplies from Europe. But the interesting thing is that the there is an interdependency. And for oil and gas and coal, or oil and gas certainly, Russia is even more dependent on Europe in terms of placing its exports onto the global market even more dependent on Europe than Europe is on Russia. So there is this sort of interdependency there, which in a sense has prevented either side so far from going very far in terms of an embargo or cutting off supplies or, or cutting off imports. Now, the EU is talking about or trying to put in place an oil embargo and it's looking at oil rather than gas, A, because it's less dependent on oil from Russia than it is from gas. And, you know, the German institutions have said essentially Germany would be tipped into a recession if we cut off natural gas supplies. There's a bit more optionality in terms of oil. And of course, 
Russia obtains three times as much in terms of import revenues from petroleum as it does from natural gas. So the fact that the Europeans are thinking of targeting an oil embargo rather than a gas embargo sort of makes sense. But there's absolutely no doubt that Hikes already mentioned the, the contraction we expect for both the Russian and the Ukrainian economy over the next 12 to 18 months. We have growth levels that we're assuming for Western Europe this year, which are pretty anemic, somewhere between 1% and 2% for 2022 and 2023. And that's one, one and a half percentage points weaker than pre-crisis assumptions. So there's a massive hit on Europe. And I think that's being reflected also in the inflationary pressures that Europe is now facing. The expectations before the Ukraine crisis was probably the US and the UK would be out in front in terms of raising rates, and the EU probably wouldn't be looking at increasing interest rates until maybe sometime in 2023 or even 2024. We're now looking at uh, the ECB potentially talking about increasing interest rates as early as July. So the, the Ukraine crisis has fundamentally changed the picture for Europe. And all this coming off the back of a fairly tumultuous couple of years for commodity markets and the world economy more generally with the pandemic, which, uh, has, as we touched on earlier, is, is still not quite behind us. I'd be interested to just understand from both of you, how does what we're seeing going on in the markets at the moment compare to what we saw through the early, maybe more shock phases of the pandemic? And what might we be able to learn from some of the similarities and differences that we see? Hi, do you want to start with your perspectives? Right. The pandemic fundamentally was a demand shock, at least on the energy and specifically oil sector. We all remember April uh, 2020, a U.S. Uh, futures market dropping into the negative territory, which I guess was an eye-popping exercise and is still is uh, traumatized a lot of people because I feel the collective response at the time, which displayed itself through the OPEC plus production cut agreement, still dominate the mind of many policymakers. The pandemic uh, was a global problem. The response to the pandemic was in many ways globally acceptable, globally enforced in many different national ways. But uh, the key difference, of course, this war has fragmented the world in more than one way. So you have on one hand uh, the US and Canada and some other members of the G7 that already have imposed uh, embargoes on uh, Russian oil imports, which they obviously can afford to do because they were importing relatively little from Russia. David just mentioned how uh, hard it is for Europe to win its health of uh, Russian oil dependency. It might still happen for reasons unrelated to economics. You have uh, Russia, obviously, on one side. There are countries across the globe that have not joined this uh, sanctions front. There are countries like India where companies have been able to take advantage of a relatively disrupted market and actually step up purchases of Russian oil. OPEC plus itself includes Russia. Obviously, the members of the Producers Alliance have been reluctant to change their output policy 
a because russia is a member but also the explanation is that opec plus has historically not responded to political events so there is at least uh, one difference as far as energy sector goes but i'm sure david has more to add as is my want i tend to oversimplify grotesquely but if i could glibly put it that if you're looking comparing the the pandemic and uh, the war in ukraine the pandemic essentially started as a demand shock which morphed into a supply crisis because of the supply chain bottlenecks that were caused by all the lockdowns in 2020 and in a sense the war in ukraine is the sort of mirror image of that because it began considering the potential for a choke off of commodity exports out of russia and or the ukraine which account for a huge proportion of the global supply of everything from timber through industrial metals, agricultural products and fertilizers and petroleum. So the beginnings of the Ukraine crisis were very much supply shock was at the front of mind. But I think what we're seeing is the inflationary pressures that have been caused by that may ultimately lead us to considering the Ukraine crisis much more as a demand side issue over the longer term because of the inflationary pressures, the rise in interest rates, and the impact it's going to have on the global economy. So in a sense, the two are in some ways a mirror image of each other. Interesting. And uh, no, I think that is quite clear and and works quite well as as a way of setting it out. As we look at the uh, um, commodity markets, putting aside things like the war and the pandemic and so on, the markets are going through more change than I can remember in, in my career. And I'm sure that either of you also remember as a result of energy transition, the move to cleaner fuels, the big drive towards improving emissions and so on. All of these things come at a cost and all of them need government support really to help them get off the ground. But I do think if we look at what's going on at the moment, it really does feel like we're properly gaining momentum on many of these things. There is a danger though that major shocks, whether it be pandemic or war, could knock us off course. And I think there's really a question as to whether or not that's likely to happen Will the crisis that we're seeing at the moment actually slow things down as people choose not to invest? Or is there even an argument that it speeds things up as we look for alternatives and try to wean us off the traditional hydrocarbons that have uh, been popular for so many years now? Hi, I'd be keen to get your views to start. So the energy transition was just in terms of rhetoric, big on the agenda of uh, policymakers, especially after the change of administration in Washington last year. And uh, yes, unfortunately, war and the necessity of dealing with the very real tragedies and uh, refugee flows has tended to overshadow this subject, but it has not disappeared, obviously. It's, it's a long-term development. It's interesting to even read the perspective when you hear the White House or EU leaders or European country leaders saying, well, you know, this just proves the need for energy transition because, you know, if we could have reduced the Russian oil and gas imports now, we would not have faced this problem. And of course, that is the essence of energy transition that uh, you need to get to a place and it takes time, decades, and for even the richest countries to get to that point. But uh, the slowdown in global growth is highlighting this problem that was evident even before Various numbers have been thrown around to estimate how much it actually takes to fund the energy transition. 
the G7 and COP26 came up to $40 trillion. That's $40 trillion in the next 20 years. It ends up being at least a trillion a year if you look at various estimates, but the reality of it is someone has to pay for it. And yes, the more advanced economies maybe can afford it in different ways, but uh, the countries that are more energy intensive, that are contributing more in terms of emissions just because of their natural energy cycle of development cannot afford it. So there has been talk of helping them get over this hurdle, but when you have a slowing economy, then money is being spent on taking care of war victims. All of a sudden, this money gets even more scarce. It is a real issue because it is going to affect availability of finance. The economic effects that uh, David mentioned, higher inflation as a result of it, higher interest rates is going to make financing even more scarce. There has always been a feeling of crisis about climate change and the need for energy transition. Well, the speed with which most leaders accepted the science behind containing the COVID-19 pandemic and the trillions of dollars that were thrown at the need to mitigate its economic effects stand out. And now the same way we are talking about hundreds of billions of dollars or euros being spent to mitigate the effects of the war in Ukraine, to fund Ukraine's ability to resist the war. Well, if you are an activist, you can ask, well, why governments cannot act so decisively on climate change, right? So that introduces that political divide as well. If you are an advocate of radical climate change mitigation, you can certainly point to a dramatic drop in CO2 emissions in 2020 as a result of the pandemic and say, well, this is doable. And the opponents of it can say, well, the public and social costs of dislocation in energy are quite high. So there's always the counterpoint. I can say that fossil fuel producers, the large national producers of oil, OPEC members and others, definitely feel vindicated because they point out to the energy crisis that predates the war and the disruptions that have happened since the war. And they say, well, this just proves that we still have a role to play. How it uh, plays out, we will see. We will continue to write about in, in coming years. But uh, yes, the, the war has definitely introduced even more uncertainty into this. David, the question is whether the pressures that we're seeing in the short term will affect sort of decisions and investments that are being made for a slightly longer time horizon. So what are your thoughts? Well, I think Pike is absolutely right to highlight cost as being key. I think the policymakers desire to use this as an accelerator for energy transition. I don't think we should doubt that. It's their ability to fund that. If we look at hydrocarbon fuels over the last 12 to 15 months, they've inflated by a factor of three or four. If we look at certain battery metals and so on, prices there have inflated by a factor of 10. So any estimates about how much the transition is going to cost in terms of incremental spend each year probably need to be ripped up and recalculated. So the financial challenge is huge. What I do think both crises are going to force us to look at is the importance of supply diversification, not being over-reliant on any one region for 
our commodity requirements. So diversity of supply is going to be a lot more important. I think we're going to see interesting things about, for example, inventories. It's a little bit of a cliche, but there's been a lot of talk about moving from just-in-time inventory management to much more a sort of just-in-case inventory management. So there again, there's going to be need for more capital in terms of putting that aside for industries and governments in terms of how they manage their inventory of key commodities and petroleum in particular going forward. So I think there are structural changes that are going to be brought about both by the pandemic and by the the crisis in Ukraine in terms of longer term changes in the commodity markets. Yeah, well, I think that's a very interesting point, the extent to which what we're seeing at the moment really is driving structural change within the market around things like globalisation, regionalisation, the way that producers and consumers interact and all of these sorts of things. We're coming up to time, but just last closing thoughts on that final question or comment or, or anything else that you think is relevant before we close. Hi, over to you, first of all. This notion of fragmentation has been around for some time, obviously, before the pandemic, before the war. Even uh, countries that once championed, quote-unquote, globalization, and by that I really mean free flow of goods, services, and capital, have started to sour on that. I think largely as a reaction to China's emergence as a key supplier of manufactured products and advanced technologies. Whether this develops to a point where we see global energy trade or global trade in critical resources being fragmented as well, difficult to say. Natural resources are distributed based on geography and geology. It's hard to imagine fragmenting them as at least the U.S. administration says. I think uh, the notion here switched from uh, globalization to something called French shoring, which means like-minded countries trading with each other more closely than others. So that's definitely something to watch for energy markets, but also beyond that. I would just conclude by saying you can extend that analogy, if you like, if we look at the transition, because in a sense, if we're moving towards more electrification, hydrogen becoming more important to the global energy economy, Those are markets that would probably tend to suggest a bit of regionalization or more localized trade if we eventually diminish the share of hydrocarbons in the market. But essentially, I think all of these things point to diversifying arbitrage flows and the need for a lot of transparency and robust benchmarks for whatever energy forms we're moving towards in the future. So watch this space. Indeed, indeed. Excellent. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd like to start by saying thank you once again to David and Hype for a very interesting discussion. And thanks to you for listening to this first edition of Markets in Conflict. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. And if you have any questions on Argus analysis of current market developments, our outlooks or anything else, then please don't hesitate to contact us. And if you'd like to find out more about our services and uh, products, then please visit www.argusmedia.com. Many thanks. 